Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm delighted to be joined today by Christopher Caldwell, who is a contributing editor at the Claremont Review and the author of The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s, as well as other wonderful books. Chris, it is great to have you on. I think this is the first time we've had you on Americano, which is wonderful for us to, to have you on. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Freddie. Thank you. I thought we should just ask the question, is the Biden presidency's honeymoon ending? And I think it's a bit of a cliche to talk about presidential honeymoons. But I think it's fair to say Biden has been treated quite softly so far by the press and the media generally. And in recent days, there have been signs that perhaps, despite the, his favourable treatment, the administration is coming off the wheels slightly. We have inflation, which people have been warning about for a long time. The modern monetary theorists have said is, is sort of old hat, really, to worry about inflation, but it does seem to be happening a little bit. We have the crisis at the border, which has been a conservative talking point for a while, but it seems to be rumbling on and getting worse. What's your impression? Do you think he's got off to a good start? Do you think things are beginning to fall apart? Well, um, that's a lot to discuss. Uh, I think that in, in the broadest terms, he's off to a great start. He's been extraordinarily fortunate. I, 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 mean, I think it was always the case because of the structure of American culture that the media was going to be quite favorably disposed to Joe Biden. So Joe Biden was going to get any president who replaced Donald Trump was going to to get good press. But the circumstances, I mean, the catastrophic, scandalous, spectacular circumstances in which Donald Trump left office did a couple of things. Uh, one, they provided Trump's misbehavior in the aftermath of the election, provided the Democrats with a Senate majority. And that's because you know, there were two by-elections in early January. That's been the key to everything, that Senate majority. It's been the key to Biden's highly transformational fiscal stimulus, you know, whether you consider it well-advised or ill-advised. Um, and then the second thing that Trump did was he presided over that, you know, riot at the Capitol on January 6th, which I think left the opposition to Biden kind of in disarray. I mean, I would say that about half of the people who were willing to, 
countenance Donald Trump. I mean, the, the entirety of the country, all of Donald Trump's supporters are aware of his shortcomings. All of Donald Trump's supporters believed that he left something to be desired as a character. But, but after January 6th and the business at the Capitol, I think that about half of them had had about enough. And so it means that, that Biden's had a, a very lucky uh, set of circumstances in which to rule, but he's also had an, an opposition in disarray. Let's talk about that transformational word. I think, yes, in terms of the stimulus, it's been very, very bold and ambitious. But for me, that feels like the easy part. The easy part is promising spending, is even doing a bit of spending, and certainly doing stimulus spending is the easy part. The hard part is what Biden has promised to do, which is to raise taxes on the highest marginal rates of income. Uh, He says, and nobody earning under $400,000 a year will pay any extra, but the people at the very top will have to pay a lot more. And probably the toughest part politically is raising corporation tax and also perhaps capital gains. There's going to be a substantial rise there. That's where you have to sacrifice some political capital, is it not? And he hasn't made it clear how he's going to do that or or indeed if he's going to do that. I think, yes, I I, I think that that's trickier. and, And I don't, thus far, I don't see any of his tax plans going anywhere. I mean, we mustn't forget he's got a a plan that he's pushing forward for a sort of an international corporate tax that he's trying to bring, you know, the OECD countries on board with. And that, too, is facing, you know, suspicion that that it's going to leave the American Internet corporate giants largely, you know, untouched. yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm afraid that gaining a revenue source that would make this spending binge a little less inflationary is proving difficult to do. And it's a, it's a good pr- preliminary warning that should this spending binge unleash more than a temporary inflation, it's going to be hard to stop. Yes. I mean, it's interesting, just the suggest, just the sort of news report and the suggestion of a tax increase is enough to send markets crashing downwards. And then promptly it's sort of talked away for a few days and it comes back every few weeks. There's been a lot of talk about how Bidenism is, uh, is a sort of woke version of Trumpism in that he will do all the identity politics stuff to keep the, the left satisfied but he will govern with the, the, the needs of American workers in mind. He will do a bit of America first. Do you think that's a, a, a coherent argument? No, I don't. I think it's kind of a cute argument. I, I think that the constituencies for woke Bidenism and populist Trumpism are very different. Yeah. The Biden constituency is largely urban. It's a new economy constituency. It's this new high-tech combination of oligarchic uh, billionaires and, and immigrant labor. I don't, I, that sounds like I'm demeaning it. I don't mean to demean it. it. It's a very dynamic economy. If that were the whole of the country, then I'd say that Biden's economic plan would serve it well. The Trump economy is the more small town, less globalized, uh, sort of um, past its prime economy, the, the economy of people who sort of built 
their culture around you know, manufacturing jobs or resource extraction and find they can't get the wage for that that they used to. And uh, these are two totally different constituencies and, and they require two totally different sets of economic policies. You've written a lot about immigration. Obviously, immigration was an issue that Trump had a lot of political success through speaking about it, through talking about the wall and so on. There was a little bit of conservative chest thumping last week because Biden is apparently now going to rebuild uh, or carry on building the wall. And that the sort of realities of this crisis at the border, which there does indeed seem to be one, mean that he's ended up being as strict or will have to end up being as strict uh, or posing as being as strict as Trump was on the border. I just don't, I just don't think that's true either. I, I, I think that it's quite clear that there's a quantum level higher amount of illegal immigration that's occurring now, as, you know, relative to what was occurring a year ago. There's a, in general, a human rights approach to this confrontation at the border rather than a sort of a militarized keep the border closed off approach. So it's just, it's, it's not just atmospherics. It's going to result in the attraction of a far larger number of people to the American border and the admission of a far higher percentage of those people. And that will satisfy the sort of, uh, let's call it the globalizing multiculturalists in Biden's coalition. There is an attempt to sort of pay lip service to policing the border in the same way that there was during the Obama administration. I mean, there was a talking point that was always leaked out like, uh, well, in many ways, Obama is the deporter in chief. But actually, he wasn't. What Obama was doing was counting, you know, people who got stopped at the border as deportations. And so it was a, it was a statistical sleight of hand. And it was, a, it was a statistic that was really meant to sort of cover his flank in the center of the electorate. And maybe it will be successful, but it doesn't really look at This is really too spectacular a change that's going on at the border now. And is it, as, as Bernie Sanders has often said, that it's really corporate America that wants open borders? Is, is that the real driver here? Well, you know, the economy is built around a lot of labor that is lower wage than Americans would find acceptable, actually, if it were, if the actual wages were known to the public. I mean, a lot of the global economy works this way in Europe as well as in the United States. People come from countries with very low wages. They accept a wage that is generous in terms of their native country, but would be low in terms of the country they're coming to. And it's a sort of indenture, perhaps, that would be a metaphor that you could use for it, until they get regularized or get citizenship or, or get permanent residence and can begin to enjoy the, the full rights of a, of a person who lives here. Well, again, wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't a truly transfer, transformational administration look to really push up the minimum wage. As I understand it, I think Biden so far has resisted calls to his left to do that. No, I mean, I, he's called for a, um, a, a national 
minimum wage. It doesn't really make as much economic sense as a more flexible minimum wage does. I mean, the figure that they're talking about is $15 an hour, and that would, that would be ruinous in a, in a state like, let's say, Mississippi, you yeah. know, or uh, parts of the deindustrialized Midwest. So it won't work, but that is where his heart is. And, and you know, Do you think, you think that's that, where his heart is? I mean, again, it seems to me the, these things, they get called for. I, I believe he's, he's pushed back a little bit on some of the higher minimum wage call appeals on the left. I mean, my, my sense is, and obviously this is because I'm a, you know, cynical conservative, perhaps, is that Biden is very willing to do the gestures and to say all the right things about, you know, critical race theory, transforming America, having a racial reckoning and all that sort of thing. But when it comes to the actual difficult economic stuff of transforming America, he's stopping short. I think there's something else happening, actually. I think that that has to do with what we've already discussed, which is the way that that Joe Biden came to power. Joe Biden was the choice of the Democratic Party to oppose Donald Trump. I mean, of its, you know, its big donors and its big strategists. But unfortunately, the Democratic rank and file did not like him very much. And he kind of had to be imposed on the party. And the result is that he owes a lot of constituencies in the party for his assent. He's also a very old man at a very radical time. So what you have is the Democratic Party run as a kind of a junta uh, of, you know, of a, of a half dozen different interest groups. Yeah. And I think that in that junta, the critical race theorists and the LGBT people, the the high tech people, the you know the uh, uh, the people who want to build more infrastructure, they all have a voice in the administration, and they're all really well represented. This administration is as radical as it looks. So maybe I was wrong to say Biden's heart in a, is in a certain place. Mm. Biden is really trying to catch up to the energy of the anti-Trump movement as fast as he can, but he's not really in control of it. But that doesn't mean that these people are not going to get a lot done within his administration. Do you think that the urgency and the, the haste with which it seems to be being done is because of the midterms coming up and, and, a, and a sort of an awareness within the administration that a lot of this stuff does not play well? Yes, and, and that's right. And, and But I think that the... I think the calculation of the Biden people is that, that they have a little bit of time before Americans begin paying attention. So, I, I mean, I, what you would analogize to would be the Obama administration when they had one big goal at the start of the Obama administration, which was to pass the Affordable Care Act. And they hoped to do it in 2009. And they left it a little bit too late. They left it, it didn't pass until March of 2010, and that's eight months before the elections. That was a little too late. It was still in people's memory when the elections came. So I think that now their honeymoon is over, but I think they still have another six or eight months where they can do things without really being harmed in 2022. Well, and as you suggest, uh, Obama did suffer greatly in, in 2010 in the, in the midterms. I mean, this was the Tea Party moment. 
I suppose the difference might be now on the right, there is no such groundswell. And indeed, there's a lot of talk of divisions among the right. We heard a lot about Liz Cheney in the last couple of weeks being ousted from her party. And that was perhaps more of a media story than a story voters really care about. But there's certainly a strong split between the Trumpist movement and, if you like, a sort of broader right-wing coalition. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think that you're right to say that the Liz Cheney story is a media story. You know, Trump really, really damaged himself in the the weeks between the election and the inauguration. And I think that one of the lessons of last November is that Trump cannot put that 2016 coalition back together again. Or a different way to put it would be that he motivates his opponents more than he motivates his supporters. He can't win another election. He has no positive energy. He has only negative energy. Uh, That is, he can complicate a congressional or a Senate candidate's path to victory by stirring up supporters against him. But I think that strategically, what the Republicans have been trying to do is to keep that Trump coalition in the fold while calming it down. And they'll do a lot for this coalition. But the one thing that they can't have is a Liz Cheney out there picking fights with it. So firing Liz Cheney was actually, or demoting would be a better word, Liz Cheney was, a, was an attempt to resolve divisions, not to, not to open them. But again, again, and I just this is just me parroting the the media line on the Liz Cheney story. She wasn't this never Trump figure, although it's claimed she wasn't. She was supportive of him while he was in office. It was just the January sixth moment where she decided enough is enough, and I have to denounce him. And if you take out the fact her surname's Cheney, and she feels like a member of the never Trump establishment, there there is something in that. Yes, but there are people who denounced Trump and voted to impeach him in the House who have risen in their committee assignments and have been treated decently with, uh, at least this is the line of the people in the Republican Party. Yes. That there are others who did what Liz Cheney did and have seen their careers advance in the months since. The fault of Liz Cheney is the continued grandstanding, not the position against Trump. The idea is that any Republican is, is welcome to take a position against Trump, but not to sort of try and foment a civil war within the party. I don't want to get you into sort of doing the horse race stuff, because I know you probably won't want to do that. But I think there's a lot of talk about Ron DeSantis being the, the, the sort of the, the, the next phase of Trumpism and someone who could perhaps bring the party and the Trump movement together. There's also been a little bit of talk recently about someone like J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, and I believe some uh, rich right-wingers, I won't, I'm not sure they're Republicans, but will be backing that. He's going to run in Ohio. That's perhaps not for 2024, but further down the line. But that would suggest a more sort of organic right-wing movement than some sort of hybrid Trump and GOP cyborg. That I, I would say that's what Ron DeSantis is. Yes, I think that's right. I think, you know, J.D. Vance is, a, a, of course, a, a, an author who's kind of like found his way deep into the American consciousness. That does not mean he'll be necessarily be a good politician. We'll see. That's a, you know, it's a long grind to run for a, for a Senate seat, and he has a lot of tests uh, before him. DeSantis is very interesting. He's run a lot of 
you know, very competitive, you know, races for the House and for, and for governor. He's uh, highly intelligent. He's highly canny. He played the COVID lockdown situation, it seems now, exactly right. I'd yes. say he seems to have been vindicated by the, by the manner in which the federal government dropped its mask mandate. And the great advantage of DeSantis is, I think, his understanding of just how complex the bureaucratic battles ahead are. And that's the one thing in which Trump was absolutely deficient. He had no patience, and I don't think any, I don't think he was really able to fathom just the degree to which his adversaries ruled through, you know, regulations and consent decrees and orders. He had no time for that, and yet that's how the country is run. And as America emerges from the pandemic, all the economic scarring, and there's, there's bound to be a fair bit of that, someone like DeSantis can become a more heroic figure to the right as, as we move further away from the pandemic, because he was the one who took those gambles early on to get things back to normal. Perhaps, but I, you know, I think the funny thing about pandemics like these is people really don't like to think about them once yeah. they're over. I, I, I just don't think that COVID is going to be a big subject of conversation in the next campaign. I, it's just, it'll be kind of done and dusted, God willing, you know? Well, what we find in Europe is that some governments seem to be quite comfortable in the, in the crisis mode, because it means that, that you can do a lot of spending. People do seem grateful to be protected by the state. Do you think the Biden administration will, will struggle to drop a lot of the safetyism, if you like, that's had to be taken on board? Well, they've done it a little bit against their will, but the absolutely sudden nature of the CDC announcement last week, and then the follow-up with Joe Biden and Jill Biden appearing maskless the next day is indicative that they saw something, like they saw some polling. And I have heard Democrats who are close to internal pollsters saying that the country's really sick of the lockdown. And so I think that there was a feeling of a dam about to burst. Biden always behaved as if it's the safety stupid. You know, yeah. safety was the first thing that people were worried about. And it turns out not to be. I think that the deaths are now, tragic as they are, below a level at which people are now more interested in their liberty than in their safety. I was just, uh, lastly, Chris, and I realise I've sort of gone all over the place, but I was quite struck when I went to America in November at how masked up the Americans were. Certainly outdoors, Americans were wearing masks far more than they did in Britain. And uh, given America's commitment to liberty, I suppose that might be surprising. I'd say two things. First, the American culture, the American political culture up until the 1960s, and this is basically the thesis of my latest book that I'm giving to you, was a British political culture. That is, it had an idea of liberty that was as sort of like freedom from being bossed around. One of the things that happened with the reforms of the 1960s, and particularly the Civil Rights Act, is that 
it increasingly abandoned that culture for a more, you might call it a continental idea of liberty. You know, I've got a, you know, like I've got a right to this and I've got a right to that. So you can no longer really expect these public expressions of a desire for liberty of the sort that you associate with Britain. You can't really expect them out of America now the way you could have 40 or even 20 years ago. The country is really, is really changing. The other thing I would say, given when you were here around election time, there was a big transformation in this country for some reason, and I don't know why it was, but when Trump got COVID. When Trump came down with COVID, uh, the difference was like, it, it changed from one day to another. There were a lot of places where you'd seen no masks, where suddenly everyone was masked. It became immediate to people. I would associate it with the way people suddenly got, got very nervous about sex in the middle of the 1980s when they heard that Rock Hudson had got AIDS, the, you know, the movie star you're probably too young to remember, but yeah. it was a powerful, symbolic moment. Well, I suppose going to the first point, sorry, quickly, I mean, could that be that there's actually a Germanic streak in American culture that we sometimes forget about? Um, we Brits like to think that America's a sort of a product of our culture, but in fact, there is a European dimension to the way Americans think about life that we often forget. I would say more and more the United States is, it's moving into the mainstream of Western cultures. That is, it's becoming a political culture that a French person or a German or an Italian would recognize as having, you know, let's just say, put it this way, let's say it's like post-EU Britain more than pre-EU Britain. (laughs) Uh, On that fascinating note, Chris, we'll end it there, but I do hope you'll come on again to discuss these things further. I'd love that, Freddie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. 